Psalm 101. Sounds like a freshman course in college, doesn't it? Psalm 101. <laughs> we have uh, reached a milestone getting to the 100th Psalm last time, and now we're starting on the next 50. Let's read through it and uh, get familiar with it. Just a short psalm, eight verses. Notice the inscription, it is a psalm of David. And it begins like this, I will sing of the mercy and judgment. I will sing of mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. O when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of those who turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A forward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath a high look, and a proud heart will I not suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all the wicked doers from the city of the Lord. Um, you'll notice, again, the inscription. It is a psalm of David, it says, and the inscriptions are not inspired. They were added at some later date, but this certainly has the ring of a psalm of David. It fits David, as we will see as we study it. And uh, there are three occasions in David's life that some have suggested that this psalm seems to fit. Uh, one of which is when David, after years on the run from King Saul, finally began to reign over Judah in the city of Hebron, which was more or less the center of, of the tribe of Judah. He reigned there in Hebron for some seven and a half years. Others suggest it was when he then captured that Jebusite fort named Zion, and made Jerusalem his capital and reigned not just over the southern tribe of Judah, but reigned over all the tribes as king of Israel for the next 33 years. And still others suggest that it was during the time when David was bringing up the Ark of the Covenant. You recall that it had stayed in a home. It, you remember how it got lost or captured by the Philistines in Eli's day, uh, carried away in the land of the Philistines. They sent it back, rather humorous story. And uh, it had been sort of uh, in the house of a Levite, Obed-Edom, for, for a long time. For the entire reign of Saul, the ark had remained in this guy's house. And David, once he established his capital at Jerusalem, has a desire to bring the ark to him. And of the three suggestions, that's the one that I think fits the psalm the best. Because notice in verse 2, there is this cry, O when wilt thou come unto me? He's talking to God asking, when will you come to me? And in that day, in a day of types and shadows, uh, for God to come to him would certainly fit the time when the Ark of the Covenant is being brought into Jerusalem and put in that tent that 
David erected for it there. I, of course, hope to scope all this out next week. Uh, want to get That's one of my main projects, is to get a sort of bird's eye view of the setting of the Temple Mount, uh, where the old city of David was just to the south, David's palace, uh, where the original city of Jerusalem sat on this sort of long uh, hill, uh, oblong hill, and where later on the Temple would be built. So that's certainly on my uh, right there, I don't know what's number one at this point. I was thinking the Mount of Olives is going to be pretty good because if Christ comes back, where's he going to come? Where do you leave? The Mount of Olives. Where's he going to come back? Mount of Olives. It'd be ground zero. I mean, that'd be that'd be all right, wouldn't it? If you were standing on the Mount of Olives when Christ comes back, that's that's okay. Okay, but anyway, whether he comes back or not, um, I want to see Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. But anyway. I'm going to bore you all the tears when I get back. You know how terrible it is to have to sit down and watch somebody's vacation pictures? You're going to get a dose like you've never, you'd never believe. Anyway, uh, slideshows, yeah. The point is, is that the, uh, if we are talking about that incident, then as I said, that fits. And it certainly fits David. It fits, it, it is a psalm that is fit for a king, someone who is reigning. Uh, we have elected a new president. Right? What happens <laughs> What happens in January? You have Inauguration Day. What is the inauguration? It is our president taking an oath of office. And what do you mean by an oath? of office. You are making solemn promises, are you not, to uphold the Constitution of the United States? You are making a vow, and to some degree, this psalm seems to be what we would call the inauguration of the king, the oath, the, the swearing-in ceremony of the king. Because the king, if you'll notice here, especially in these first five verses of this psalm, is making solemn promises, making statements. Notice the I wills. Did you catch those? I will sing. Then verse 2, I will behave. I will walk. Verse 3, I will set no wicked thing. Um, verse 4, I will not know a wicked person. Uh, who's, verse 5, whoever slanders his neighbor, uh, I will cut him off. He that has a high look and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. Notice how... This has sort of like a marriage ceremony where you're saying, I do, I do, you know. You better be careful what you say. <laughs> you may live to regret it, but be careful. But notice here the king is making these solemn pledges, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And so it begins to look like a psalm uh, that is chock full of what we would call resolutions. We know all about resolutions on New Year's Day. We're full of them, you know. We're going to lose so many pounds by, you know, summertime. And never happens, but we have these New Year's resolutions. Well, this is the resolving of one who is reigning and who has a kingdom and as to what he will do in that kingdom, how he will reign, how he will manage the affairs of that kingdom. Now, you say, well, then it doesn't really have much to say to me because, after all, I'm not a king reigning in Jerusalem over a kingdom. Well, no, you're not. 
But notice in verse 2, he says, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. When we talk about the house of David, we're of course talking about more than just his residence, his palace. We're talking about his kingdom. That is, the area, the kingdom over which he has hegemony. Y'all, y'all familiar with that word? Hegemony. Um, back during the Cold War, it was said that Eastern Europe came under the hegemony of the Soviet Union. Um, the, the, the spear of influence, the spear of power. Some people say hegemony, but hegemony is the correct way of pronouncing it, I do, I do believe. And so you would say that there are certain kingdoms that extend their boundaries out beyond their own borders, and that becomes the area under their influence. Okay? That's under their hegemony. And David's kingdom, of course, was first over the southern tribes of Judah. That was his hegemony, now over all the nation of Israel at a later date. And uh, your kingdom's probably a little bit smaller than that. Your house... Uh, whether you're talking about the residents or whatever, but everybody has a certain hegemony. They have a certain domain, a dominion, over which they are in charge. We say a man's house is his castle. I'm king of my castle. My kingdom's not very big. doesn't extend beyond my front yard. But in the house, I'm, I'm, my word is boss. We, we, uh, they use a very interesting word in Greek, okay. Nomos. And we get our word economy from that oke nomos. Oke means house, nomos means law. The house law. I suspect that in your house you have a house law. You have the way it's to be done there. Uh, when people come and, uh, or your children are raised in your house, there are certain rules, there are certain regulations that is the economy of your house. And usually it is the father or the mother, or in some terrible cases, the child is in charge, but you, you understand <laughs> that it should be the father uh, whose word is law in the house, that he's the one who sets the house law. Do you, you follow my drift? And, and again, let's suppose if you work for FedEx, and looking at Craig here, uh, Fred Smith has the hegemony over... FedEx, and he has a certain way he wants things done, the way it's supposed to be run. And uh, when you work for FedEx and work for Fred Smith, you're supposed to do it that way. Um, now, and if you're an employer, if you've got a business, your hegemony is a little bit, a bit larger than somebody who's working for somebody else. And look at Caleb here. He, his hegemony is probably pretty small at the moment, right? <laughs> I rule over me, myself, and I sometimes. <laughs> That's about it. Okay, but you get the picture that everybody has a dominion of some sort. They have a house over which they rule. David's a little bit larger, his kingdom's larger than yours, but in that realm, what you say goes. You understand? And so what I'm saying is, what David here is saying and applying to his house, his kingdom, can be applied to you and my my situation, our house, our kingdom, that over that which I have charged. That may not be much. 
Maybe the dog. <laughs> you know, what do I rule over? What, 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 what is the scope of things that where I, where my word is law? Where what I say goes. And that may be rather small. Some of you a little bit larger than others, but uh, in your life, you have a ram that in this ram, I get to choose what happens. And David is telling us what he is going to do in his realm, which was, of course, the nation of Israel. We have had, in Psalm 95 through 100, a series of psalms that have dealt with praising the Lord. In fact, if you let your eyes drift back to Psalm 100, we know that one really well, making to the Lord a joyful noise, all ye lands serve the Lord with gladness, enter into his courts with thanksgiving. It's all about praising God. In this psalm, notice in verse 101, chapter 101, it starts like those others. It starts with him saying, I will sing of your mercy and your judgment. Now note those two terms, mercy and judgment. We have talked about this so often, I'm almost embarrassed to bring it up again, but I'll get over it. Those are the two aspects of God's character that we see running all the way through the Bible. Let's start with the idea of his judgment, that he is a God of law. He's a God of righteousness. He's a God of equity. He's a God of justice. All of those terms sort of under the umbrella term there of judgment. And yet, at the same time, he is a God of mercy. And under that umbrella term, we would include his loving kindness, his grace, his compassion, his forgiveness. And so we have a God who is at one and the same time a God of justice, judgment, righteousness, holiness, we use that term to refer to him, and then at the very same time he is a God of love, mercy, and grace. Our danger is to lose sight of one or the other of those things. Uh, I was deep, last night in our Tuesday night class, I was pointing out that liberal Christianity um, has no need for propitiation. Propitiation is a long ten cent word that speaks of offering God something to appease Him, to turn away His wrath. And that liberal Christianity looks at the cross of Christ and in no way sees it as a propitiation because they assume that God is only a God of love, and you don't propitiate a God of love. Why do you need to propitiate a God who is only a God of love? You, you see the reasoning. And therefore, when liberal Christianity looks to the cross of Christ, they don't see it being directed upward to God, doing something to change God. It is rather something that's directed horizontally to change you or me. It's, it's like, um, I'm doing this as a demonstration of my love for you. Uh, I want you to follow my example. Look how I'm sacrificing myself. I want you to sacrifice. I want you to follow in my steps. Uh, we have the moral influence theory of the atonement, the example theory of the atonement. And it's not that the, his atonement isn't an example or a moral influence, but, but when you make it only that, you miss the heart of the cross. The cross then becomes an attention-getting stunt. It's like the shepherd saying to his sheep, look how much I love you, and he jumps off a cliff. 
It's meaningless. It's just a stunt. But if God is a God of justice, law, judgment, holiness, then the cross is involving that. That there's something going on at the cross of Christ where Christ is not offering Himself horizontally to you or me. He's offering Himself, and I'm using the verbiage of Hebrews here, He offers Himself up to God. What is going on at the cross that it needs to be offered up to God? It's propitiation. And John, of course, in 1 John 2, He is the propitiation for our sins. Notice He doesn't make propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. Sin had to have something that would satisfy the offended justice and righteousness and holiness of a divine God so that His love might be manifested to us. My old mentor E.W. Johnson used to say, if you don't believe that God is a God of law and justice, you better look over there at that hill where that cross is. Because he said, what in the world is Jesus doing on that cross? if God is not deadly serious about sin. If He can just forget it, snap His fingers, and sweep it under the rug, if ever there was a day He'd have done that, it's when His own son was being judged. So if you don't think God's a God of justice and law, you better look hard at that cross. And then He says, but if you don't believe God is a God of love and mercy, you better look hard at that cross. What in the world is the Son of God doing there? if God does not love the world and gave His only begotten Son. Do you see how at the cross, mercy and judgment meet? And notice those two things being extolled here, that the psalmist, David, is saying, I will sing of God's mercy and of His judgment. We've had psalms in just just previous to this where one or the other of those two things You remember we talked about how often we found in this series of psalms that just precedes this, Psalm 95 to 100, how many times we saw the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns and the earth rejoices. The the Lord reigns and the heathen tremble. Two aspects of God reigning. For God's people, that's good news. For the wicked, it's not good news. (laughs) They're trembling. And so you notice you have one or the other of those two attributes being extolled in these psalms that just precede this one. So notice that David is beginning this one, and we would think that it's going to follow just like the same pattern that we've seen before. It's going to be a psalm talking about how we ought to praise God for one or the other of these attributes. But it's not. Instead, it is a psalm that is all about your practice. And we're, we're, it's sort of like getting a bowl of cold water thrown in your face, is that the service of God is not all ritual, praise, singing, so forth. That the service of God also involves behavior, a walk, a way of life. And sometimes we can lose sight of that. We can get so up, wrapped up in the emotion of religion and praising God and serving Him and then walk out the door and all of that just goes out the window. I mean, we're just singing with the saints here in the auditorium. We walk out the door we become mean as snakes. 
we're singing here about amazing grace, we walk outside and there's no grace at all to be found in us. You understand that to be a true worshiper of God, we have to have both of those things going on. Not just that we are in awe of the praise and, and the, the greatness and majesty of God, but that that affects how we live. And if it doesn't affect how you live, it's not worth a dime. You're just a hypocrite. If we truly glory in our God, we will have a desire to emulate Him. Isn't that true? I mean, I, I look around and, uh, you know, everybody, all the kids wearing these athletic apparel, they got somebody's number on their back and so forth. I mean, they, they just worship this basketball player, this football player. And so they've got his jersey on. They've got the, the color. I mean, come game day here in the South on uh, Saturday, all everybody's riding around with the flags flying out their windows of their favorite school, and they're identifying with that. Notice that that's what goes on when you value something, when you glory in something, you want to identify with it. So it is in the worship of God. If we truly glory in our God, we're going to want to identify with Him. How do we do that? We want to do like He does. We want to try to show the same characteristics found in Him to be found in us. And that is the, the idea that's going on here. Now, again, your hegemony may be rather limited. Your influence may be very small. Some of us have bigger spheres of influence than others. But what David is saying is that within my house, here's how things are going to be done. And notice that that then, in verse 2, becomes the prerequisite for God coming to him. If we think of how will God come, what, what is required of the person to whom God comes. Now, I want you to realize that in a theological sense, God is omnipresent. God is always there. In fact, Paul mentions this in, on Mars Hill, that He's the one in whom we live and move and have our, have our being. He's not far from any of us. You know the, the language there. There's certainly a sense in which you say, where is God? Where do I have to go to, to have, uh, come into the presence of God? Well, He's everywhere. And yet at the same time, there is certainly a sense in which God comes. There's a time, there are times when God is near, and there's times when God is far. In our own subjective experience, there are times that it seems to us God is a million miles away, and then there are times when it seems that He is very close. And we are told in the Scriptures to draw nigh to God. Right? Well, how do you draw nigh to a God who's omnipresent? But the sense is, is that God is the receptor of one who is of a contrite heart. Notice drawing nigh to God it doesn't have to do with making a journey. It has to do with a heart condition. And so notice that what is going to follow here in this psalm is David making these resolutions, making these vows, that if God's going to come to me, Here's the kind of man I'm going to be. Here's the kind of man that God comes to. If you're going to have God come over to your house, how are you going to run your house if God's there? All, I mean, you, you know, I was going to say if the President of the United States showed up, bad example. If, uh, <laughs> you know, if Fred Smith came over to your house, Craig, 
would you feel a demand to have everything just right? I mean, if he came over to my house, he'd find dirty clothes laying on the floor, dishes in the sink, all that, you know. But if somebody you revere, somebody you really respect, somebody you stand in awe of comes over to your house, there's some things going to get cleaned up. If God Almighty comes to your house, and that's what David is pleading with God to do here. He's bringing the ark, if I'm correct, he's bringing the ark of the covenant to his town. He's going to set it up in a tent next door to his house. God's going to be living next door. I mean, that's a rather troubling thought to most people. They think of going to heaven, they want to be in the back 40 somewhere. They don't want to live next door. But notice that God is coming next door. What then, how then should David order his house? You get the picture? All right, here's what he says. In order to do this, there are certain things that David will reject in verses 3 through 5. Let's go through the list of them. To be a holy man, to be receptive to a holy God. I guess I've got it backwards. A holy God demands holy people. That make sense? Who's going to appear before God? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, Psalm is saying. I mean, if this was a filthy God that was coming to town, maybe we could be filthy. If he was a cussing God, we could cuss. If he was a God full of hate and vengeance, then we could be hateful and vengeance, full of vengeance. But whatever God this is who's coming to town, going to live next door to my house, he's going to demand that I'm like him. And so notice holiness, and I've tried to, in our Sunday school class, trying to impress you on this, Holiness really, we, we think it means living right, and it does, but the meaning of the word is set apart to God, is to be set apart to something, separated to something. And what makes holiness for us to be the equivalent of righteousness and uh, godliness and so forth is the nature of the God to whom we are set apart. He's like this, so we must be like this. And so notice the things that David says has to go when God comes to town. You want God to come to you? Here's what's got to go out the window. I mean, we talk about cleaning up your house if Fred Smith comes. (laughs) This is a little more important than Fred Smith, okay? And you would throw out some stuff. You'd take the trash out. You'd clean up the house. You'd wash the dishes. You'd get the clothes straight. I'm, I'm... Painting you as a terrible housekeeper, Barbie, but, you know, I'm, I'm using my example. Okay, how it'd be at my house. Uh, that, you know, all this mess is out there, chaos, especially right now. And, uh, somebody important comes over, we'd be getting rid of a bunch of stuff. We'd be putting things in order, wouldn't we? Well, here David expresses the things that he will put in order. There in verse 3, I will set No wicked thing before my eyes. There's a sense in which you cannot keep your eyes from seeing certain things. Evil things. There's a difference between simply seeing it and setting it before you. To set it before your eyes means that you are gazing. You're pondering. 
you're meditating. I'm thinking of Eve in the Garden of Eden. How did this whole thing get rolling? She saw that the fruit was good for food. It's like she started, huh, you know, that that's forbidden, but that doesn't look that bad. It all begins with the meditation, the pondering of it. How did David's sin with Bathsheba begin? With him walking on the rooftop and gazing upon her as she's bathing. Notice that the idea that sin starts here as we gaze, as we meditate, as we ponder, as we think about it. There's a sense in which you will never be free from the assaults of Satan. There are times that ideas come into our mind and we don't have a clue where they come from. There's a sense in which Satan does have access to the mind of a believer. If he didn't, you could never be tempted. The very fact that you and I can be tempted shows that Satan has a certain amount of access to our minds. In other words, if you're thinking, I'm going to be in a situation where no evil thought ever enters into my brain, you'll never be there this side of glory. The sin is not in the entrance of the temptation. The The sin comes from falling prey to the temptation. And we fall prey to the temptation when we begin to ponder it in a favorable light, when we set it before us. Notice there's an act of the will here. I'm not just glancing, having evil things pass in front of me. I'm taking the evil thing and setting it in front of me and gazing on it. And so notice that David is making a resolution here. I will set no evil thing before my eyes. Secondly, he says, I hate the work of those who turn aside. It will not cleave to me. I will not have the deeds of evil men be attached to me. I'm I'm reminded of when Jesus told his disciples, you go into this village and they won't receive you, what did he tell them to do? Wipe the dust of the place off your shoes. Don't even let the dust of that town cleaving to you, because it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for them. So get it all off of you. Don't let a trace of it be attached to you. And notice what David is saying here is not only will I guard my eyes, what I behold, what I ponder, what I think on, but I will also not partake in the acts, the deeds of evil men. I will not let those things cleave to me. You notice he's describing the heart of a holy man. This is how a holy man thinks. The holy man does not minimize or negate sin. I, I love that verse in Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted that we sing every now and then. Ye who think of sin as lightly, nor suppose the matter great. Here may view the cross. Here may view the matter rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. In other words, you may think sin is a small thing, but if sin's a small thing, what in the world is the Son of God doing dying over there for it? In the same sense, the holy man has a holy detestation of sin. That's the mark of a holy man. Now, the lost person looks at the Christian and assumes that we're just legalists. we got all these rules. We, we don't smoke, drink, cuss, and chew, don't go with the girls that do, you know, all that. That Christianity is about not doing a bunch of stuff, right? It's all negative. 
Well, there is a negative side. The Christian abhors sin. The Christian, if he had his way, would never sin again. I know I would, if I could, if I could possibly, I've thought many times, if I could just write my sins down on a piece of paper, take a match and burn it, and those sins would be gone, I would never practice, never do those things again, I'd do it in a heartbeat. If I had my way, I'd never sin again. I'm going to sin, you understand. Just follow me around a little bit. But you, if I could. And that's the sign of God having written His law in their hearts. That's the sign of being conformed to the image of God. We think of sin like God thinks of sin. And so it doesn't cleave to us. Let's go on. Notice he says in verse 4, A forward heart shall depart from me. Forward is an old King James word for perverted. When you think of a forward heart, let me get some feedback from you. What you think that's describing? What would how, how would you, in your modern words, describe forwardness? What do you think he's talking about? What? Wayward. Wayward. Your your English accent throws me, Barbara. Wayward. Uh, a, a wayward, we think of waywardness as wandering, straying. Well, it certainly involves that. Okay, they, they delight in it. That's, that's true. Uh, y'all are, y'all are dancing around what I'm fishing for. Perverted. Well, what do we mean by perverse? Perverted. What is, what do we, wouldn't we say that's perverted? Twisted, and that is probably the best modern word, twisted or skewed. It's twisted. If we somebody has a twisted heart, notice what he's saying, a forward heart shall depart from me. My heart is not, I'm not going to let my heart be twisted, perverted, skewed. When someone has a twisted heart, what, what do we mean? What would it's it's instead of being straight, it's I'm gonna say gay. <laughs> well, there's one example of perverse, perverse, twisted. But you think about it, that's what what are you saying? Why why should we view homosexuality as a sin? Because it's perverted. Because it's twisted. It's skewed. It's not natural. It's twisted. And so notice that instead of having a heart that is right, upright, I have a heart that is twisted all around. It's a person who's putting on an act. His thinking is warped. That's another good word. Warped for forward heart. And so the idea is, is that David is saying, I will strive to have a heart that is right, aligned with my God. I want to think like God thinks. I want to look at things like God looks at it. I want to love what He loves. I want to hate what He hates. And one of the things God promises back in Psalm 18, one of my favorite Psalms, David's, it's, by the way, at the end of Second Samuel, we saw this in our Tuesday morning Bible study. At the end of Second Samuel, when David is nearing the end of his life, 
Psalm 18 is recorded as sort of his saga, his life story. And so it's a very meaningful psalm. But in that psalm, God says, To the upright I will show myself upright. To the pure I will show myself pure. To the forward I will show myself forward. And the, the sense is, you want to play games with me? I'll play games with you. Now, you want to be upright and honest and transparent and open? I'll be open and transparent and honest with you. But you want to play games with me? I'll play games with you all day long. In other words, I've often said that's an amazing statement because it's telling me that I can control how God deals with me. And if I'm open and honest and upright and I come without uh, duplicity, without, you know, white man speaking with forked tongue, that kind of thing, when I come with a heart of truth and honesty and openness, I can expect God to deal that way with me. Okay, so we better rush on. I will not know a wicked person. I will not know. To know in Scripture means more than just knowing about something. But it's to know and to... Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore a son. It's to know in an intimate sense, to experience this. The point here is that David is saying that I don't have anything in common with the wicked man. I don't know him. It's not that I don't know his name, I don't know where he lives, I don't know this and that. But it's that I don't understand him. I don't get him. We're marching to the beat of a different drum. We're not on the same path. We're not headed in the same direction. We've got a different agenda. And so I don't know that wicked man. And verse 5, he that secretly slanders his neighbor. Now what would we call that today? Gossip? What did you say? Gossip? Lie, of course, lying. It's lying about somebody. But it's, uh, it's the idea of making sure that everybody knows what's wrong with the whole Sue or Sally or Sue, I'm sorry. Um, Charlie or <laughs> Joe or whatever. In other words, we're going to make sure that we are uh, the advertisers, the communicators of whatever fault we can find. Uh, it is this idea of backbiting, stabbing people in the back, talking about them behind their back, that kind of thing in a wicked and vicious way. And so whoever slanders his neighbor, notice, I will cut him off. And then here is an interesting one. He that has a high look. Oh, Charles, he's got a high look. About six something. He's got that high look. No, actually, I'm the one with the high look looking up to him. He's like, he's got a down look <laughs> looking down to me. Uh, the idea of having a high look. It, we use that terminology, don't we? Somebody with their nose stuck so high in the air that if it rained, they'd drown. Sort of that, that notion. The haughty, arrogant, and uh, it's interesting in the Psalms, there are six things the Proverbist says that God hates, yea, seven, and number one, the number one thing God hates is that high look, that high look, that prideful, arrogant, haughty look. And so notice David says, because God doesn't like the high look and the proud heart, I will not tolerate I'm not going to suffer that high look 
Do you see here how David is aligning himself with the character of God? And because of that, there are certain... I mean, we, we want to be positive. You know, Joel Osteen was being interviewed, was it Larry King? And he asked him about this sin and that sin. Oh, he said, I don't talk about those things. I want to be positive. Well, folks, I'm sorry, but there is a negative side to things. There are things that God will not tolerate. Sin is something God hates. It is infinitely detestable. He cannot look upon the least sin with the least degree of favor. And therefore, if we are to walk with our God, there are things that we must not tolerate. That's just the way it is. Because that's the way our God is. He can't look on it favorably and neither can we. He cannot allow it. We can't allow it either. And so notice that David is saying in my house, here are some things we're not going to have. We're not going to have a high, haughty look. We're not going to have lying, talking behind people's backs. We're not going to have wicked behavior. We're not even going to look at evil, wicked things in my house. Because my house, it's sort of like Joshua saying, as for me and my house, We're going to serve the Lord. I can't control your house. Uh, You're not under my hegemony. But in my house, this is the way it's going to go. And David is saying, in my house, in the house of David, spoke of the reign over the entire nation. In my nation, where God has placed me as king, this is the way I'm going to rule. Get used to it. (laughs) Because you see, I am ruling at the bequest of my sovereign. The Lord, I'm the shepherd of Israel, but the Lord is my shepherd. I've got a shepherd. Your your shepherd has a shepherd. And therefore, in my house, this is the way it's going to be run. Now, it's not all negative. Notice the next verse, verse 6, is the positive side. And by by the way, you remember when we studied 1 John? There were three main things that were the signs of regeneration, new birth. One is that you love righteousness. Two, you love the brethren. Three, you love the truth. Remember we had red, white, and blue? Red for the love of the brethren. White for the love of purity, righteousness. Blue, the love of fidelity. True true blue. Y'all remember that? But we said we could also state those in the negative. For to love righteousness, and John makes this clear, he that's born of God does not continue to commit sin. He practices righteousness on the one hand. He does not practice sin on the other hand. The man who loves the brethren hates the world. Love not the world, the things that are in the world. The love of the Father is not in you if you love the world. In other words, you you have an affinity to the brethren, the people of Christ. You don't have an affinity to wicked people in the world. Thirdly, you love the truth and you hate error. You hate lies. Notice how you've got the positive and the negative. It's sort of like cold. You say, I love cold, but I don't hate anything. Well, if you love cold, you hate heat. You say, I love darkness. If you love darkness, you hate light. That's just the nature of things. So notice we've got the both sides here. Six, Verse 6, my eyes, however, shall be upon the faithful of the land. Two, two things he exhibits here that he says I want, I want to see. Faithfulness in those of the land, and then they that walk with perfect, in a perfect way. 
he shall serve me. Now this obviously again, the king talking about how it's going to be in his kingdom, how his servants are demand are to expected to behave themselves. And in his kingdom, the thing that he values more than anything else is number one, faithfulness. We value showiness. That's why we have so much of this, like people like shooting stars, just like a flash in the pan. God honors the good and faithful servant. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. In two cases, one made a lot of money, the other didn't make as much. Both of them received the same commendation. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. What does he mean? You were faithful in how you handled what I committed in your hands. You honored that like it was mine, because it is mine. It's my money. I gave it to you, and you handled it faithfully as a faithful servant. And so notice that David is touting that particular quality in his servants. The man who is faithful in least is also faithful in much. We don't think it works that way. We think that if God would give me some great big thing to be faithful in, I'd be faithful in that, but after all, He just made me dog catcher or the janitor or whatever, and so I don't have to be No. You'll be faithful in the little things. You'll be faithful in the big things, and that's how God advances His servants. What He looks at is their faithfulness. Number two, they walk... How does he put it here? In a perfect way. Now, perfect to us has to do with moral perfection. You know, you're so perfect, that kind of notion. And in Scripture, the idea of perfection is merely, it's more the idea of being mature and complete. And so the notion that's being expressed here is not necessarily absolute sinfulness, but it is a life that reflects the character of God that is full-hearted and sincere, that I am sincerely, honestly, openly serving my God with a perfect heart. We, we find descriptions. Job was a perfect man. He wasn't sinless. We see that at the end of the book. He's repenting of his sin. But the idea is, is that it's sort of like a, you've got a new baby and you look at him and he's, oh, he's perfect. Well, what do you mean? Well, he's got five fingers instead of six. He's got one nose instead of two. He's, he's perfect. He's complete. Now, there's another sense in which he's going to grow up and mature. He may be perfect now, but he's going to grow in perfection as he matures. And so the notion of the perfect man is the man who is mature, who is complete. He's not one-sided, warped half-hearted, duplicious, but complete in his obedience towards God. So those are the qualities on one hand that he rejects, on the other hand the qualities that he's looking for, that's going to be the law of his kingdom. And then we close out with these la- this last final resolution in verse 7 and 8. He that works deceit shall not dwell in my house. He that tells lies shall not tear in my sight. I will destroy all the wicked of the land. He's the judge. He has been given the commission to represent God over Israel. 
And so he is the one who bears the sword. And it's not in vain. He is to execute God's judgment and wrath upon evildoers. Now, we are not in that same circumstance, you understand. Except in my house. I've had a few executions there. Well, not really, but threatened <laughs> a few times. <laughs> but, but notice that what David is saying is that my duty is to make sure that my house, my kingdom, is a clean, fit place for God. And for it to be a suitable residence for God Almighty, there are some things that have to go, and there are some things that I want to see. And that is going to be as true of your house and my house, our kingdom, however little it may be, as it is of God's. Now, we sang just a moment ago, Come Ye Sinners. It is, I think, the greatest song of what we might call invitation uh, that has ever been written. The poem by Joseph Hart. He was an old Baptist preacher in England back in the 1700s. I wept at his grave in Bunhill Fields in London a few years ago, thinking of those lines, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. One line, I had to hunt for this one. It's not well known, but down the back side of his monument there was these words, this, there is no price, this grace is free to Paul, to Magdalene, to me. Said, I don't, I don't know that much about this guy, but he's one of me. I'm one of him. I, I'm in his crew. That's that's me right there. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, if Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, how are you going to live like this? You see, you see a, a difficulty here. I will not know a wicked man. I will not tolerate wickedness. Anybody, how can you be a friend of sinners yet separate from sinners? I'll remind you, our Lord was both. He was called a friend of sinners. And yet at the same time, Hebrews tells us He was holy, undefiled, separate from sinners. Anybody got any idea? Anybody ever had a quandary over that? How do I evangelize sinners? How do I become a friend of sinners without becoming associated with sinners? That's the, it's almost a cliche. And I've often said that's a difficult thing because how do you how do you have sin but how do you separate the sin from the sinner? But I've never thought of anything any better. There's a sense in which we can say that we absolutely detest what the person is doing, and yet at the same time we have a heart of love for the person himself. And I don't know how else I keep thinking there's got to be a better way to say it than that, but I hadn't come up with it yet that we desire to see the salvation of the sinner. We desire to see him quit sinning. And that's the, that's the difficult balance, that our lives is never walking up to the sinner and putting our arm around him and saying, there, there, it's not all that bad, don't worry about it. No, you better worry about it. 
It's that bad. It's far worse than you think it is. But that's not being unfriendly to the sinner when we tell him that. That's being honest with the sinner. That's warning the sinner. That's being a friend to the sinner. The the proverb says, more faithful are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. You see, the sinner wants everybody to kiss him. Flattering. Tell him peace, peace, when there is no peace. And the true friend sometimes has to wound. More faithful are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. And yet we have to do it in such a way that we are, first of all, not putting ourselves in a place of judgment. Um, Don Carson up in Canada said, used to, the most famous verse in the Bible is, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. He says, today it's judge not that you be not judged. I mean, that's the first thing out of somebody's mouth. You tell them that's wrong. They say, who are you to judge me? Judge not. You're not supposed to be judging. My reply is, I'm not judging you. God is. I'm just telling you what He said. This isn't my standard. I didn't decide that's wrong. He decided that's wrong. I'm just telling you what He said. Don't get mad at me. Your beef is not with me. It's with Him. Okay? So I am not your judge. I don't, I'm not qualified to be your judge. I'm a criminal who's been pardoned myself. (laughs) I am in no place to be your judge. But I can tell you what happened to me. I can tell you that the judge expects certain things. The judge has declared certain things ought to be this way. And so we can do that with a heart of love that we love the person and yet we do not become associated in such a way with the sin of the person that we are contaminated by. Let's look at Jesus sitting, eating with sinners. That's when the Pharisees really got upset. This man is a friend of sinners. He's eating with sinners. And in that context, Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son. And clearly in the parable... The prodigal son represents these publicans and the elder brother represents the Pharisees. Won't go into all the whys and wherefores, but that's the simple explanation. That it's the elder brother complaining about mercy being shown to this prodigal brother that's being reflected in the Pharisees complaining about mercy being shown to these publicans. But if the publicans then are represented represented by the prodigal, then notice these are repenting publicans. They are pursuing repentance. Jesus is welcoming the repentant sinner. That's what you see in the prodigal son. The father welcomes with open arms the repentant son. That's a hard balance to keep, folks. How do we associate? How do we become friends with sinners and yet not be partaker of their sin? And that that's our calling. That's what we're supposed to be. Charles? I think we're misapplying the text. That we've got to recognize that This is David saying, this is what I'm going to do to those under me, under my hegemony. Let's say you have a business, and you've got half a dozen employees, 
and you catch one of those employees robbing from the till or lying to you. He that loves darkness rather than light, I guess. Okay. But anyway, if you have an employee that is dishonest, lies, what do you do? You fire him. That's what David is. David's king. And we're not king. We're not king. And that's that's the difficulty is that it's one thing for somebody in, in my house. I catch one of my kids lying. We're going to the woodshed. But my neighbor lying, that's another story. He's not under my dominion. He's not under my influence. And so I think there's where you can draw the line. I cannot control what goes on in your house. And that's not my duty. I have a sphere of influence. Those under my influence, I'm on, we're going to run it this way. And that's what David is saying. And you would do the same thing. If you had an employee you caught robbing you, you'd, you'd fire him. That's not being harsh. That's not being unloving. That's acting like David. Well, we got to stop.